Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And Mr. Charlie Duke, Apollo 16, youngest man to walk on the moon, 10th man to walk on the moon. Is this episode 475? Is 4 plus 7 plus 5 16? It might be. Did I plan that? No, but I'll take credit for it. No one wants to hear me talk, and they don't want to hear Aaron talk. They're here for Mr. Duke, but because Mr. Duke does not know my friend Aaron, Aaron, please introduce yourself to Mr. Charlie Duke. Hey, Mr. Duke. My name is Aaron Shepard. I am Tommy and I are like brothers from another mother because, like him, I was smart enough to get into medical school and then dumb enough to leave it. Um, but he was actually smarter than me because I did my first year. And then while I was in my first year, I actually was watching um, – a, a probe land on a comet. It, it was from the European Space Agency. And I saw that and I was like, you know what? I really want to do space stuff. Like, let me drop out of med school and do space stuff. So um, I did that. I ended up going back to uh, school. I go to Clemson University now. I study electrical engineering. And while I've been in school, I've actually, I did the NASA Academy at Langley. I did two summers at Langley. So I just, I am just all about the story of human spaceflight and doing my part to contribute to it. So to meet you today is an honor because, I mean, you are Charlie Duke. You walked on the moon. Like, that is incredible. It's, uh, it, it was a nice uh, nice experience, Aaron. Uh, and uh, glad to see you're excited about it. Uh, uh, tell me how you met Tommy. Uh, so Tommy and I, we actually met on uh, Reddit and I, cause I do a lot of robotics work and I posted one of my robots and he was like, Hey man, come like, yo, do you want to come and be on my podcast? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I came on and then I saw him and, you know, I think once we both talked about med school and our experiences there, we clicked and we've been like this ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, we've, ne- yeah, we, we never met. We just, yeah, I found him right when I, yeah. I mean, I'm maybe a month into the podcast. And I was like, okay. oh, this guy looks cool. And we started talking and yeah, I was like, I was like, hey, Aaron, do you want to talk to a guy that walked on the moon? And he was, I was like, yes. He was like, don't tease me. Don't play with my heart. But I, I did want to have Aaron on to talk to you because Mr. Duke, as you know, I can't hold down a serious conversation with you because I just start smiling and getting all giddy. And, you know, I and I don't fully I appreciate it at the layman's terms. I look at it and I'm like, you walked on the moon. More people have been the pope. So I wanted Aaron on because Aaron actually has an appreciation for this. And I feel like he can ask more uh, sincere questions that perhaps you could relate to more as opposed to me just sitting here smiling, saying, oh, my God, it's Mr. Duke. It's so Aaron, you had some specific questions or themes you wanted to talk to Mr. Duke with. What do you want to begin with? Well, let me let me uh, before that. Yes, sir. Uh, say, uh, Aaron, uh, I have uh, three grandchildren who graduated from Clemson, and uh, they live in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, they love Clemson. I got a, another daughter that's a granddaughter that started there, but then they ended up at college at Charleston. So, uh, mm-hmm. And I got three more grandchildren over there, so I think they're all looking for Clemson, too. So uh, <laughs> my, my, 
my daddy is rolling over in his grave because he was a Gamecock fan. So oh. <laughs> I grew up in South Carolina. So anyway. Mr. Duke, just yeah, before the meeting started, Aaron was like, I got to ask him, Clemson or South yes. Carolina. And, it, and I was like, I was like, yeah, man, this, this might be a, this might be a deal breaker. So I think, I think you just became a match made in heaven with Aaron. Yes. Yes. I was like, I was going to ask you. And if you said South Carolina, I was going to, you know, just look past it because again, you <laughs> well, space is bigger than all that. I was a Gamecock fan when my daddy, of course, but then when my, uh, 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 grandkids uh, started uh, going to Clemson, and my son got actually a uh, MBA from Clemson uh, mm-hmm. as uh, after uh, he graduated from Furman. So uh, uh, the Clemson Tigers are my team now. So <laughs> beautiful. Yes, good answer. I I, I love it. Um, so one thing I did want to ask you because again I. Um, Ironically, I am a obviously I'm a huge fan of space flight, and I, I love the details of it. And um, first of all, let me say like one thing that I think is incredible when I was thinking about you and like specifically your experience is that um, even when Apollo Eleven was happening, even as history was being made, like there you were the voice because you were Capcom. You were you were Capcom during that time, and so America heard you. And if I recall correctly, you're like. Your your voice was one of the first voices heard on the moon because you were like, yeah, we copy you down, Eagle. Um, so can you tell us like what it was like like in that moment, in those final moments, as they're descending, as they're close to their uh, – because I think they were, what, within 30 seconds of having to do a mandatory abort for fuel? Well, yeah, it, uh, it was very tense. Uh, we had had uh, – communication problems on descent and we had computer problems uh that i thought was very serious it turned out it wasn't mm-hmm. uh then we tried to had them in the wrong trajectory and neil couldn't land in a boulder field so he had to fly over at and that led to a minimum fuel problem and mm-hmm. so you can imagine the tension in mission control are we going to do it or are we going to do it and uh or, or get there and so when they started down uh, from about, I think uh, he must have been four or five hundred feet up, but he picked the landing site, so he starts down uh, in his final descent. And uh, somewhere in there, uh, we had sixty second uh, fuel remaining warning, which was mm-hmm. a, a, a mandatory call to the crew sixty seconds. So I gave that call. And then uh, I did later on. I gave thirty seconds, and they were maybe twenty, thirty feet off the moon at that point. And uh, but they were descending in a cloud of dust, and uh, and then when uh, so you can imagine, we just holding our breath. Actually, <laughs> and uh, after I gave that call, according to my watch, thirteen seconds later, uh, Buzz Aldrin had contact, uh, engine stop. Uh, and uh, and I knew they were on the ground, and I think I said, uh, "Roger, copy on the ground." And then uh, then I waited for Neil Armstrong to confirm when he when he confirmed, uh, and he changed his call sign. If you notice, from Eagle to Tranquility Base, mm-hmm. but uh, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed, and then I stumbled out, Roger Twang or Tranquility. <laughs> And we copy on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. 
So it was uh, tense up to the last second. And, uh, you know, I never did ask, ask uh, Neil, but uh, when he gave the, at the end of the 30 seconds, if we'd have called a board, that meant we were down to 4% fuel in the uh, descent stage. And the idea was to throttle up to full power and start a mm-hmm. rate of climb and then then abort stage. Well, that's 4% of, 4% fuel there, and he's 20 feet off the ground, and he had the final decision. Mm-hmm. Had we called an abort, uh, I'm convinced he would have uh, um, said something like, Say again, Houston. I didn't know. The- <laughs> <laughs> I'm landing this beauty. Yeah. Uh, you know, so anyway, we didn't have to. He didn't have to face that dilemma. And, uh, yeah, and so let me ask you this: because you have the privilege of having been Capcom for Apollo 11, and then eventually going doing that descent during Apollo 16. And so in your opinion, which one was harder? Was it harder to watch it happen or to actually be in the limb? It was harder listening to it and mm-hmm. one, uh, than it was doing it. When you're, when you're doing it, you're, it's dynamic. You know, the things are moving and mm-hmm. you can see outside and you get a, uh, a good visual cues. Uh, whereas in mission control, you're just trying to imagine this, you know, and uh, and you don't have really control in mission control. You're just sort of sitting, riding along, and listening to their conversation. So I think that was more tense uh, than and actually doing it. And <clears throat> so in uh, in Apollo 16, uh, it was two man job. Is every landing was uh, mm-hmm. commander was flying it in the final stage manually. And I was talking him down with rate of descent, altitude, lateral, forward velocity, managing all the systems. If we'd had an emergency in the uh, in the lunar module, I would have handled it. Mm-hmm. Looking out the window occasionally uh, to see, make sure he's not landing in a crater on my side or a big rock. Uh, and so it's so dynamic, you just get caught up in the, uh, the excitement of the landing. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't, I, I don't remember exactly, but I don't think our heartbeats got up very high. And it was just, uh, you know, it was do your job like a simulator for real. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it it was uh, a, a lot more fun, I should say, uh, and exciting than being in mission control. Uh, but it was. As far as the operation goes, I said it was. It's a lot easier to take that activity than sit there mission control and and you know anticipate whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I have, I have such. I'm so glad Aaron's here because I have such a hard <laughs> time not just not just ye- every other guest. I can keep my cool. But when Mr. Duke comes on, my heart rate starts going up, and I just want to start screaming. I'm like, you walk to the moon. I know. I got a professional face. Um, Aaron. Yes. Um, so actually, that was um, – so I two questions. One, during your training, did you end up um, doing your simulated descent at the gantry um, that's at Langley? And if you did, or regardless of what simulator you use, what were the differences between the sim itself and then the actual landing? 
Well, I did. Uh, I didn't get to fly the LLTV uh, mm-hmm. after uh, Armstrong had to eject. Uh, that simulator uh, was uh, only the commanders were allowed to fly that. Mm-hmm. So I did go to Langley and fly that uh, Slidewire uh, B-Cent, and that was uh, not bad, but it was so quick. You know, mm-hmm. you just uh, you you were coming down, and uh, uh, and I don't remember how long it was, but uh, the final stages of descent, and and that one you were you were coming down, always moving forward uh, because that's just the way it was designed. But you did get the motion. Use uh, if the vehicle was moving around, the, uh, the the systems in the in the lunar module simulator at uh, the Cape or Kennedy Space Center where our training mostly was, uh, it was very accurate uh, mm-hmm. in uh, the systems operation and the out the window, but it was bolted to the floor. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't get the motion cues. You looked out the window and you could see the horizon moving, but it was uh, it was a video picture. Mm-hmm. And you were flying a camera across the lunar surface, and as you banked one way or the other, you saw that outside, but you didn't feel it inside. Mm-hmm. And also you didn't feel the engine thrust vibrations or the RCS as they banged back and off, off and on. Okay. So uh, the 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 uh, combination of both uh, uh, was uh, you got a little bit of the motion in the slide wire at Langley, but uh, not really right. And so uh, <clears throat> we, I felt like we were rail trained, even though we were fi- we were in a fixed base simulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you got used to the banging and the shaking of the thrusters uh, during the undocking, and uh, you know all all the things you have to do to change attitude. And uh, so uh, we were well prepared and uh, excited, of course, about it. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a. So, did you ever, uh, as you throughout the trip, because? Um, Actually, I have two questions. I'm sorry. My mind is like racing. I, I'm trying to keep it together. I'm trying to do it slightly better than Tommy. But um, do it much better. So because if I recall correctly, if you to launch and travel to the moon is what? About a two, three day process. And then uh, the trajectory for uh, Apollo was 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that included our time in, in lunar orbit. Uh, I mean, in uh, Earth orbit. So we had uh, one and a half revs uh, in Earth orbit, and then we accelerated mm-hmm. with the Saturn S4B, uh, and we were on the way. And from that point on, it was it was when we started, when we intercepted our uh, desired trajectory at the moon, it was like 72 hours, 73 mm-hmm. hours. I don't remember exactly the minutes. Uh, and that trajectory was determined by how much fuel we had in the command service module mm-hmm. uh, because you had to use that service module engine to slow down to get you into orbit and mm-hmm. then enough fuel left over to do your maneuvering in orbit and then enough fuel to get you out of orbit and coming home. And so that's why it was a 72 hours because you could go right to the moon, but 
uh, Aaron, but you could, you were going so fast when you got there, you didn't have enough fuel to slow yeah, it yeah, yeah. in orbit. So, so they shot you out of the, out in front and you just sort of like lead collision, uh, course. And, uh, and that was designed to 72 hours because when you got to the moon, you still, you had enough gas to do all of those maneuvers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I so sorry, simple question. What is it like walking up to a fully fueled Saturn V <laughs> and knowing that you're about to get on top of it and light it? Well, we got out of the transfer bed. We were excited. You know, we're, I think everybody on the crew and all of the engineers keep counting, keep counting, keep counting. Uh, you wanted, you were ready to launch. Yeah. And uh, so we got out of the transfer van. And it was sort of eerie, you know. Every other time I'd been out there, uh, there was like the all the worker bees were like ants running up and down, and the elevators going up and down, and all of this stuff, and all this activity on the pad. But lunch day, you get out of the van, and there's nobody there. It was man, this is still this. They're they're really going (laughs) to. You can look up and and see the the Saturn V and and it's outgassing, you know, boiling off all this stuff and the umbilicals and so it's alive. It really Mm -hmm. is more alive than you've ever seen it. And uh, so we get in the elevator, and the elevator is sort of open, so you can see out. As you went up the stages, uh, you can see all the umbilicals and and the, the fueling going, processing going in, the boiling off of the liquid, whatever it was. And uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, it it got really exciting. And you then you walked out of the elevator across the uh, swing arm, and I could look to the right, and there was all this crowd uh, to watch it out there, you know. And you look the other way, you look at the ocean. And I got into the white room and Gunter went and the crew welcomed us all. And uh, Gunter had a, uh, he always gave the commander a little souvenir, a little joke, if you will. And uh, so in our case, it was, he, he had a, a a hand on the end of a of a rod and and with uh, things. So uh, John had a tough time sometimes reaching it from his his height. He could, you know, he had a tough time sometimes reaching the far switches. So uh, Gunner thought he'd give him a little hell. So nice, <laughs> and they got us all strapped in, and uh, they. They left, and the only window that was uncovered was the hatch window. And uh, so you, I looked back on the left and over the hatch, and I saw uh, a wave or two, and then they left. And then the count, I think we had another hour or so at that mm-hmm. point. And uh, it was uh, keep counting, keep counting, I'm ready mm-hmm. to go. And uh, the anticipation builds up. Uh, of course, as you got closer to liftoff, mm-hmm. that, 
my heart is going through my chest just listening to that. But the, but there's there's a there's a there's a beauty in what you just said that's I think applicable to everyone, and it's it's keep counting. I find mm-hmm. I mean Aaron, as you know, the closest thing to a launch day for me is taking the MCAT or going to do a medical school interview. You're like four years of working, mm-hmm. less than one percent of students are going to get in. But you're right. There's sort of a there's sort of a keep counting. It's go through the routine. You've practiced for this. You've studied for this. Just don't let it get to your head that I'm about to take the MCAT. It's just, okay, this is the first section. This is the chemical science section. Just go through. There is a beauty in that. Just just keep counting, do it, and go through the motions. And don't, don't give in to, I guess, don't give in to excitement or amazement. But mm-hmm. sorry, I, ha- I had to ask that, Aaron. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, no. And actually, I was going to ask, too, because um, it actually relates to that. Hold on. Um, did Aaron, you, hold on. sorry, Mr. Duke, you were saying something? I was just going to say, it's uh, it, it's keep counting, uh, don't stop, uh, is a selfish motive, actually, because uh, in uh, in Apollo, if, if, you had, if you didn't make that four-hour launch window, you had a 30-day delay. Uh, and that 30 days, you could have an airplane accident, you could crash a car, you could break a leg, you could, and you and you'd lost your chance. So uh, that's why we were ready to go and uh, keep counting. So you're really depending on the other people, uh, the, the the all of the engineers and the technicians who've made this vehicle ready to go. Uh, and you, you're depending on your chance on their ability to do the job right. Yeah. So uh, I think I've always had that uh, never give up um, attitude, and uh, we're going to go and it. And it's that uh, you described it well. That motivation that when you get in that kind of spot, just keep pressing ahead, pressing ahead. Yeah, it's. I've I've had on. Sorry to interrupt you again, Aaron. Um, I've had on members of Delta Force before, just the elite of the elite special forces. And one thing they always say is, um, or you say keep counting. Dale, the guy who I've had on, uh, he calls it ten meter targets. He says when you're when you're in a, a country that you're not supposed to be in and you're in like direct contact with the president and you're going to assassinate <laughs> someone, which is all real stuff they do and you haven't slept for two days and the supplies aren't coming in and the radios are dead, he said, you don't worry about how are we going to get home? Am I going to see my kids again? He calls it 10 meter targets. He goes, what's 10 meters in front of you? There's a rock. Let's get to that rock. You get to the rock. What's 10 meters in front of us? There's a target. Shoot it. What's 10 meters beyond that? There's a river. We're going over the river. And you just do 10 meter targets. And next thing you know, you've gone through 72 hours of battle and you're home. But he says, yeah. if you look at the whole thing, you'll kind of freak out and implode. You just so I imagine it's probably like, wake up, go to the restroom. We're going. <laughs> we're, we're getting in the van. We're going to the. There's the umbilical cords. Look at the. Okay, we're going up the elevator. It's don't freak out. Don't think about the million gallons of fuel. We're just one thing after the other, and next thing you know, you're on the moon. And I'm sorry, I'm just I'm, I'm fanboying. Aaron, take it away. 
And actually, again, my question is during that entire 72 hour process, plus the time that you're on the moon, it did at any point, did it just become normal? Were you just like, all right, got to get through this checklist, got to get through this checklist? Or was there always a part of you that was like, oh, my God, I'm on the moon, I'm going to the moon, oh, my God, what? Okay, uh, oh my God, I'm on the moon really happened when I was on, when we stepped over the moon. <laughs> going to the moon, uh, you had a, a, a flight plan and uh, various experiments, uh, housekeeping, uh, preparing the meals. Uh, you know, we did a, a light flash experiment and electrophoresis. And so, it seemed like to me you were following the flight plan uh, uh, all uh, the whole 72 hours. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, there were three, I recall, three uh, rest periods during that time. We'd taken off our spacesuits, and uh, I was just floating around in my uh, uh, cotton long johns. Uh, John and, and I think Ken, they put on their uh, constant wear garment or whatever it was called. Uh uh, some uh, just white stuff and uh so uh if we all had our duties and we all had our things and we kept looking out the window and uh, when we i can remember that first view of earth after we separated uh from the s4b and manning was making a maneuver to turn the spacecraft around so he could go in and dock with the lunar module mm-hmm. and uh so i'm sitting there writing pads down and listening to Houston and and in that right side window the, the earth flew uh, the earth came into view it was about 20,000 miles away and it's breathtaking and uh, uh, I was sort of mesmerized on that view you could see all of the Arctic Circle down across Canada, the US Mexico, Central America the Pacific Ocean the Gulf of Mexico and there's this, ju- this beautiful jewel of blue and white and the brown of the land just suspended in the blackness of space. Uh, none of the pictures that you take can capture that emotion that there's home out there 20,000 miles away and you can see the whole of the earth. It was a pretty moving, pretty moving moment for me. And then when we joined up with, right after that, though, we joined up with the uh, lunar module, and it looked like it was, it was uh, we couldn't tell whether it was liquid or what, but there was things, just little specks just floating away from the lunar module in, in, a, in the vicinity of one of the fuel tanks. And our first mind, oh, gosh, we got a fuel leak. What we're looking at is fuel flying out. So we told Houston, and once we got all buttoned up and everything, uh, they had us go in and power up the lunar module, which wasn't in the checklist at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, we checked all the systems, all the pressures were good and no leaks. So we just said, well, we don't know what it is, but uh, we're go. And uh, so we continued to the moon in that situation. And finally, the flex just kept, they just stopped flaking off turned out it was flakes this paint mm-hmm. was a, uh, a, uh, a thermal paint had been applied apparently incorrectly so we these little chips of paint were peeling off and floating off into the uh, into space and uh, it looked like a fuel leak but it wasn't so <laughs> anyway we were busy I, I 
I don't remember any down really downtime. I could we could listen to music that we brought on tapes, uh, and uh, but that was sort of done in in conjunction with eating meals and stuff like that. It's yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like it's kind of Aaron. I'm sure you've done this. I know I have. Have you ever just seen like you know those nights where you walk out sometimes and the moon kind of it kind of catches you and it's, you know, it's just really, and then what do you do? You, you take a picture and you try to get a pic and then you look at the picture the next day and it, it's just, even if it's a great picture, most of the time it's just a blur, but even if it's a great picture, it's not the same as when you're standing barefoot on your driveway on a summer night and you can mm-hmm. kind of hear the leaves rustling and you just see the moon and it's almost like you could touch it. I never thought about that, but it's probably the same with standing on the moon, looking at the earth. You can look at some great pictures, but it's nothing like no. the the blackness encompassing all. You're the coolest man in the world, Charlie. Dude, <laughs> you're the you are legit. You're the coolest man on earth. It's I'm very fortunate to have been uh, in the right age, the right time, the right experience, and to get selected, and even doubly uh, uh, privileged to have been selected to be a moonwalker. Uh, you know, there were. Only 12, we had 40-something astronauts in the astronaut office at that time, and only 12 of us got to do that. So uh, 24 got to go to the moon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, three guys went twice, if you remember. Uh, Jim Lovell went twice, never did land. Uh, and uh, then um, uh, John Young went twice, and uh, I landed with him. And then Gene Cernan went twice, and they were both on Apollo 10, Mm-hmm. And ended up commanding sixteen and seventeen. So, so there were twenty-seven seats, but only twenty-four guys went. Mm-hmm. Of the moonwalkers, only four of us left alive. And uh, it's uh, those obituaries are going to be. And the other guys, you know, there's only one crew uh, that's left with everybody alive, mm-hmm. and uh, that's uh, Apollo Eight. That's uh, and. Uh, and they're the they're the only crew also that are still married to the same women. <laughs> <laughs> Consistency, man. That's, that's yeah. Why, hey, they yeah. stay together in more way than one. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. yeah. I've I've reached out to I've had on uh, Buzz Aldrin's secretary on here, Mister Robert Charles, who has an incredible resume himself. Um, oh. I can't he I can't get Mr. Aldrin to agree to an episode and I can't get anyone else to respond to me. I've tried to, I've tried to get everybody on here. I wanted to get everyone <laughs> left and do a podcast but can't get it together. But hey, it is what it is. Um Aaron. Uh, yeah, so actually one question that I wanted to know is um I, I did a little bit of reading about you and um I know that faith is an important thing for you and one thing that, yes, we know that uh, the Apollo missions, they were scientific endeavors, but then ultimately they were human endeavors. And how does seeing just the mechanics on the universe at the scale that you've seen it at affect your view on faith, on um, just what it means to be human, what it means to exist in this universe, and kind of what, it, what may be out there beyond us? Well, during the mission, uh, I I cannot recall one spiritual thought or one philosophical thought. 
you were just so focused on the the wonder and the excitement and the mechanics of staying on schedule and doing your job, collecting this rock, that rock, this experiment, that experiment, that uh, you you had this uh, adventure spirit, but not a philosophical or spiritual side that I can recall. Uh, mm. at the, and I do, but I do remember looking out and seeing the horizon of the moon and that contrast of the bright gray of the moon and the blackness of space. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we couldn't see on the moon. We couldn't see the earth because it was right overhead. And, uh, you know, in Apollo, you look up and you're looking at the top of your helmet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, on the moon, there was a, there's a beautiful picture from Apollo 17, uh, with the earth and the flag and, and Cernan. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, there were several astronauts that I think that uh, uh, did uh, a- acknowledge the spiritual side. And uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, was an elder at the Presbyterian Church, and he had communion. He took uh, communion mm-hmm. with him to the moon, and uh, w- which to me implies that he's thinking about the Lord uh, as part of this mission. And then Jim Irwin uh, was uh, uh, a very committed uh, believer uh, before he went. And one of his EVAs, he started quoting scripture, and I think it's Psalm 121. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to me, the second, I think the second most moving words spoken from the moon were Apollo 8 on that Christmas Eve Mm-hmm. when they started reading from the first chapter of Genesis and they took turns and I think they went through the first 11 verses mm-hmm. and then they signed off the TV and Borman said uh, uh, basically God bless the good earth or something like that mm-hmm. so there was a, that spiritual thing uh, was I think there in, in, in several instances uh, uh, I Mine came later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, was six years after that when I really had a commitment mm-hmm. uh, to Jesus. And but I, I had respected God all my life. I'd been in church. I'd been baptized. You know, I knew there was a God. I knew uh, what uh, salvation was, uh, but it was mostly head and not heart. Mm-hmm. Seventy-eight. It, went from head to heart. And so that's the way we've been as a, as a couple ever since, and family. It's, that's one thing I've, I've brought up on this podcast before was the profound impact of, of when I spoke to you on episode 216. And it was, and I've told the story on here a thousand times, people have listened to it, but, you know, I was born, born Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic school my whole life. Um, around 15 started questioning it a lot by the time I was 16 full on atheist and in uh, college I was too as as Aaron I was pursuing the sciences and to me that just reinforced it even more I was like this is just you know for a while I was sad about it I was like oh it's just all science and then I just kind of came to terms with that it was just matter and energy and I really accepted that and you know, when I graduated and the entire time I, I wanted to believe in a God, but I just didn't. 
uh, right after I graduated when my oldest brother passed that brought me closer to, to, I would maybe say agnosticism, but still pretty, pretty atheist. And, um, there was still kind of an emptiness and up until about age 30. So August of last year, still pretty hardcore agnostic wanted to be, I mean, who, who doesn't want to believe in a loving God? I just, I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember talking to Mr. Duke and I was asking him about, uh, what happens basically along the lines of what happens when you get everything in the world you want and it's not enough. And to me, it was Mm. the podcast was finally making money. I got to quit my job. I moved out of my parents' house. But what if I get everything I want? What if I get the biggest podcast in the world? What if I have sports cars and a private jet? And what if I'm still empty inside? And I remember watching interviews with you, Mr. Duke, beforehand. And you had said that that was a problem you had because, mm. you know, in the Air Force, the, the creme de la creme is becoming an experimental pilot. And then the true achievement is, well, it's going to space. And then the ultimate is to walk on another celestial body. And you said you had that emptiness when you came back and mm-hmm. you felt it was affecting your ability to be a father, to be a happy individual. And you, you said that you said that. I remember because you were telling me this, we went over this on episode 216, and I remember you said it so matter-of-factly. You said, just ask Jesus, ask God, whatever you believe in, ask God to come into your heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the one the one thing about when you're not religious is the last thing you want to hear is anyone try to put it on you. But you didn't put it on me because I had asked you. But, you know, the last thing you ever want to hear is someone that comes up to you and says, you need Jesus. You're like, dude, leave me alone. But but that's that, for the record, that's not what you were doing. I had asked you. And if anyone else had said it, I'd probably be like, that's nice. That's sweet. You know, whatever. But when I'm talking to a guy that walked on the moon, when I'm talking to a guy that when you're shaving off seconds, when it comes to, or, you know, Neil Armstrong down to 4% fuel, when you're coming down, you're not someone that did what you did because of, because you have kind of delusions about it like you have the right stuff and it's it's you have what kennedy said we need you know not because it's easy because it's hard and i remember that you just said it to me so matter-of-factly it'd be like if i said how'd you land on the moon you would put reverse thrusters on and well how'd you find peace well i asked jesus to come into my heart you just looked at me without blinking and i remember afterwards i decided i was like well I'm not sure if it will work, but why don't I, why don't I try it? And I told you, and I have since 2008, I've been meditating every day. It's how I, if you can't tell I'm already crazy, but it's how I stay a little less crazy. And I remember deciding, I was like, well, why can't that just be prayer? So, and I've told people on this podcast before, it's, 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 it's amazing because who else gets to just talk to a guy that walked on the moon about their philosophical problems, but the simplicity of you saying, just ask, ask God to come into your heart. And he will. And so that's what I did. And I can say with the certainty that this this is going to drop at 9.81 meters per second, I can say with that same certainty, last October after I spoke to you, I asked God to come into my heart. I can say that my life has never, and I'm getting emotional saying this, my life has never been better. I've never been more at peace. It's, you know, the saddest I've been since my brother took his life in April 2014. But I, every day, I... I now wear, I wear his necklace and it's, I, I, I think a large part of it, not I think, I know a large part of it 
is from you, Mr. Duke. If if anyone else told me to find Jesus, I'd be like, get off my property. But when Mr. Duke said it, I was like, the least I can do is just try, as a scientist, right? The least I can do is just try the hypothesis. Mr. Duke, I there is peace in my heart. It's, I don't, I can't thank you enough. And it's very rarely that I, I do get a moat, but I, I have to thank you. It's, it, it, you have brought sincere peace to my heart. And I, there's, now I'm choice. Aaron, take it away. I didn't know. We, you know, we just need to let that one sit for a few seconds. Yeah, That's, it, yeah. <laughs> it's, thank you, Mr. Duke. Sincerely. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that with me. Uh, it's always really good that our lives have other influences in other people's lives, especially on the spiritual side. And, uh, you know, uh, I, at 37, I'd climbed the, the ladder of success and there was no peace. And uh, what now? You know, and that's what led me eventually uh, to uh, to faith. And uh, said, in fact, my wife, she said, I've tried everything but Jesus. Why not try it? <laughs> and she did. And I, two months later, she had changed, gone from sadness to joy. And uh, so two years later, it took me two years after that to make that decision. Uh, and I realized that, uh, you know, if I make that decision and, and I did make that decision, and I experienced this peace uh, and I still have. Now, we've got bumps in the road. We've been in the bar ditch uh, sure. A couple of several times in our in our life, but it doesn't being a believer doesn't shield you from pain and troubles. Yeah. Uh, it gives you a foundation to re, to stand on that uh, on and and get through the troubles. Uh, Jesus says He's with us always. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, He is with me. And so that's the experience that I've had, and it's bright peace. And uh, for me and my family, and uh, uh, so thank you very much, Tommy, for sharing that with me. It uh, yes, makes sir. me really special. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, you know, if, and again, I'm, I'm someone that anyone that listens to this knows I'm not, I'm not, it, it's not something I push on people. It's not, but it's, as, it's, Aaron, as yourself, I think we could all agree we all have a very good appreciation of science. I try something new, right? Is is it a medication? Is it a new phone? I try a new tactic, a new camera, a new lighting, and you, you approach it with the scientific method. I applied this. What variables changed? What did I keep the same? How did the results deviate, and what can we extrapolate from that? I, I, I don't know. I took your advice, and my life has been unimaginably better. So I just, I have to, I'm not saying it will work for anyone else and I, and I'm not going to push it on anyone else, but it, it, to me, it's, it's as simple as science. And it's, as you said, so beautifully, I used to walk on the moon. Now I walk with God. And to yeah. me, I was just like, that's like, that's, that's the perfect ending to a movie. Like that's right. All right. And, um, and then real quick, cause I, I, I excuse me. I said it lasts forever. Yes, yes, right, right, right. You can be on the moon for a couple of days, but that's it. It's, and I, I know we got to wrap it up because we're coming up on two. Um, but I also wanted to say there's another line, and I, and I think I went over it the first time we spoke, but it's just a great one. And it was you in an interview several years ago, and someone asked you, um, someone asked you about about 
uh, you know, claims that we didn't go to the moon. And you said, if you look at images of the moon, you can zoom in and you can find the rovers, you can find the footsteps. And people ask, well, who put that there? Well, who put that there? And you go, I did. I put it there. <laughs> That's how I know it's real. So it's just the ultimate, like, yeah, someone did put it there and you're looking at them. So <laughs> I've, I've been rambling. Aaron, would you, we have, we got to wrap it up, Aaron. Okay. One last question. Speaking of God and faith, and I, I've heard a story that you were apparently one of the greatest wingmen of all time. Is it true that, uh, was it Ken Mattingly's ring fell off his finger and then you saw it floating in space on the way back from the moon? Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, he lost his wedding ring, uh, quick story. He lost his wedding ring uh, in the spacecraft uh, the second day. <laughs> and uh, so we'd come back uh, after our moonwalks, and it's now seven, a week later. He's still looking for this wedding ring in there somewhere. So on the way home, we had a spacewalk or an EVA. And he uh, goes out, and I get out. I come back inside, and he goes up. 10 feet away to a um, uh, an experiment he's working on. And mm -hmm. I'm watching all this, and it's brilliant, you know, in the blackness of space, everything. And all of a sudden, I get this glint, and floating out the hatch is this wedding ring. <laughs> and uh, I reached for it, and I missed it, and, uh, well, lost in space. Tumbling <laughs> in the sunlight and very moving very slowly. And uh, then it bounced on the back it hit him on the back of the head and uh and i thought it was just well off in space but it took a 180 degree bounce there and it came right back into the hatch and i grabbed it on the rebound <laughs> so i put it on my little finger and I, when he got back inside i found something for you and i put it to him and he was thankful it was amazing, really. I mean, you can imagine a round helm and a round ring and get on a 180-degree bounce off mm -hmm. round, uh, circular objects. is it's almost <laughs> impossible. You're right. Yeah, yeah. circular objects hitting in the exact elastic point to come back. Mm -hmm. That's crazy enough, not to mention it was on the ride back from the moon. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Uh, back to Earth, I can see the Earth out at 180,000 miles away. <laughs> You're the coolest man in the world. No pun intended. You are the coolest man in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mr. Duke. Uh, yes, thank you. Aaron, nice to meet you, young man. I hope to see you at Clemson one day. Yes, nice to meet you too. Hopefully, yes, come down for a game. Do you, do you make it to the games at all? Uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, but uh, not recently. We've been... Uh, uh, my son and them—they had all tickets, but they do ta they do tailgating and uh, and give the tickets away to the kids and stuff. So mm -hmm. anyway, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Give me your uh, contact information. Yes, I I'll, I'll 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 link you two together in an email. And uh, as I believe it's tradition, I'll I'll wait a couple months and then I'll start harassing you again, Mister Duke, and say, "When can I steal you for a podcast?" and in your utmost patience, you will say, I'll get back to you. And uh, luckily <laughs> enough, I'll snag you again. I will send you Aaron's email. Email Aaron, I'll send you his. Yes. Mr. Charlie Duke, Apollo 16, the youngest man to walk on the moon, the 10th man to walk on the moon, 
a living legend and mm-hmm. wingman of the century, snagging <laughs> gold rings out of the air, philosopher, warrior, poet, who's instilling faith in athe- atheists like myself. There's nothing more you can want. What an American. God bless you, Mr. Duke. God bless America. Thank you so much, sir. Aaron, I'll send this to you as well. You guys take care. Thank you, Mr. Duke. Yes, thank you, Mr. Duke. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Recording stopped.